John chapter 3. We're going to read the first 21 verses. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Dear family and friends of Don and uh, brothers and sisters here gathered this morning, We've come to this funeral service uh, for Dawn, and uh, I want to begin by sharing some reflections that I received from Aaron. I asked him if he would share some of his thoughts on Dawn and their relationship. And I want to start by uh, sharing some of these things that Aaron communicated to me. I think some of them are also included in the obituary. But for all of us here, I want to call your attention to uh, these words from Aaron about his dear wife. He said, Dawn always put others before herself, often at the expense of herself. She couldn't be happier holding or playing with a baby, her child. She was always looking for new things to do in order to bring joy to someone. She was patient in affliction. Despite the many health trials she was going through, She never gave in to despair. When anyone came to her with something, there was no question of having her complete and undivided attention. 
and that she would follow through however she could for resolution. One of my many joys with Dawn was chanting Eshet Chayel, or the woman of valor from Proverbs 31. On uh, Sabbath evenings, Aaron would chant this psalm to her in Hebrew. She truly had many of these admirable qualities. I foresee myself returning often to this text and reflecting on the times and ways that she manifested these characteristics of that psalm. I wanted to share uh, these thoughts at the beginning uh, because I'm not going to say much more specifically about, about Dawn in this message. Even these few words help us to appreciate that Dawn was a uh, not only a loving person, but dearly loved by Aaron and by others. There are others that will say more about Dawn who are able to do that from a firsthand experience and a greater knowledge than I have of her, although from the brief time that I've got to know her, I can, I can see the truth of, of some of these statements about her attention uh, and uh, her, her thoughtfulness of responding to questions or things that that I would share or say when I was visiting Aaron and Dawn. But what I want to do is lead you in reflection on what is probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's probably the most familiar verse in the Bible and for good reason. It's a wonderful passage about the love, the love of God. And it's the knowledge of such love and even the experience of such love that really is the basis for true human love whenever it's found. In the, the letters of John, we have this statement, uh, in the fourth chapter or in the third chapter of first John, where it says, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So that true human love that reflects the love of God is based upon uh, a new life that we receive from him and a knowledge of him. And I want to focus upon the love of God as it is proclaimed in this, this great verse. God so loved the world, it begins. And uh, with, with such an expression, we are immediately drawn to the greatness of that love. It, uh, it strikes us as something that deserves an exclamation point. God so loved the world. God loved the world so much. And indeed, that is, that is true. But the rest of the text really focuses upon how God shows his love. And only when we understand how he shows his love can we really marvel at the greatness of that love. And so there are three things that we're going to look at in connection with the way God shows his love. First of all, the fact that God's love meets us in our actual condition. God loved, God gave, so that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a passage that clearly involves the assumption that God loves those who are perishing apart from that love. That's a strong word. It's a love that rescues from an awful condition. 
Maybe we don't use that word perishing very often. We might use uh, the word uh, perishable, perishable items, perishable items in our refrigerator that that will go bad, that will rot, that will that will be destroyed. And yes, that's kind of involved in the meaning of this word. It involves a kind of destruction. And in that connection, it certainly involves the, the reality of death. If you go back to the first chapters of the Bible, we hear God's uh, threatening against disobedience and violating his word. He told Adam and Eve that in the day that they eat of that fruit that he had forbidden, you shall surely die. Death is not a part of God's good creation. You read the account of Genesis again and again. We hear that God saw what he had made and it was good. And after the creation of man, behold, it was very good. So death is not some natural part of the of the circle of life, but rather it is the result of sin. We read from Romans chapter 12 up to verse 11. If I continued the next verse, you would have heard this. As through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, if it were not for sin, there would be no death. And that means that death entered the world because of God's judgment against human rebellion against him. And that's certainly involved in what it means to perish. But actually, as dark as that is, our condition is actually darker than simply facing physical death. You know, there's this, there's this amazing account in the Gospel of Luke where people came to Jesus and they reported to him that there were those of Galilee who Pilate, the Roman governor, had killed while they were offering sacrifices. He says he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And then Jesus has the most astonishing response. He says, do you think that those people of Galilee were greater sinners than others? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he said the same thing about those on whom a tower in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, it had fallen on people and killed a number of them. And Jesus said, do you think that uh, they were more wicked than all the other dwellers in Jerusalem? And then he makes the same application. No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, that doesn't mean that they would all die by a tower falling on them or die by a, a massacre. But they would not only die, but that die would be a kind of perishing that is the result of their impenitence. The book of Hebrews makes clear what that involves. It says, it is appointed for, for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And that's really what's most fearful about death, the kind of fear that people can't altogether escape, because they can't altogether escape the thought of God. Now, God's love is revealed to save people from the result of that judgment, from that uh, condemnation, that eternal condemnation for breaking God's laws. The book of Romans also in the second chapter says that those who have sinned without law, in other words, even those who never read the Ten Commandments, well, they show in their own conscience and in their own behavior, that they know the difference between right and wrong. Their conscience has often accused them or excused them. And on that basis, God is going to judge the whole world. And those who sinned without law will perish without law. And those who sinned in the law, they will be judged by the law. The point being that the law of God 
exposes the reality of sin. And if we relate to God only on the basis of his law and his commandments, we are in big trouble. It's called perishing. Now I realize that as I, as I explain such things, that I might be provoking a reaction against some of you because our natural reaction, mine as well as yours, is to resist it. We don't want to face our actual condition before God. In fact, this passage that we read describes that. It says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. The light of Jesus Christ, the light of God's truth, especially in Christ. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Our natural reaction is to resist the penetrating light of God's truth that exposes the reality of our sins and faults. And we say, I'm not that bad. That's our natural inclination. Sin is not that serious. Certainly, my future is not that dark. We blame the message or blame the messenger. Jesus explained it, why the world hated him. And he's talking there about the Jewish world. Me they hated because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. That's our natural response. We blame the message as if the aim of the message was to condemn us. When that's not the case, verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The gospel does not put people under condemnation. It exposes the reality of condemnation so that they might listen to the remedy. The, de- the, the message doesn't make our condition. The message of God's love meets us in that condition. If we face that condition, then our ears may well be opened to that solution. If we don't want to face our condition, actually the love of God cannot be known and valued for what it truly is. In fact, let me, let me make that stronger. Unless we face our condition, the way the Bible reveals the love of God just will not make sense to us. And that leads us to the way God's love is demonstrated. God's love is demonstrated in his saving provision. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. Now, this is an introduction to the story of the birth of Jesus. And the birth of Jesus is the story of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. It's the story of one who existed equal with the Father from all eternity along with the Holy Spirit, coming into this world of sin and shame and taking to himself our very human nature. That's the miracle of the incarnation. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God, as he's referred to in verse 18, who is also the Son of Man, verse 13, whom God sent into the world. I wasn't sent into this world. You weren't sent into this world. You didn't exist before your conception. But Jesus was sent into this world. He is the one who came down from heaven, verse 13. And you know that this is really what the whole Bible is about? This is what the gospel is. This is what the good news is, that Christ Jesus came 
in fulfillment of the promises of God's word. From the very beginning, you go to the first book of the Bible. The third chapter is the first promise of the coming of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's a reference to the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That first promise in the first chapters of the book of the Bible and the rest of the Bible is the unfolding and the development and the enrichment of that promise with greater and greater detail. All the prophecies of Scripture focus upon Christ. He came as God's one and only solution to human guilt and misery. And he came to take the place of the guilty. And he came to face God's judgment for sin on their behalf. You see, that's the meaning of the cross. That's why I said if if we don't face the reality of the seriousness of sin, the way God shows his love will not make sense to us. Why the necessity of this holy and perfect Son of God dying an agonizing death in darkness under God's judgment? Why did he willingly do so? And why did God plan such a way of showing his saving love and mercy without compromising his justice? So that we can know that we're saved, not by God just winking at sin, but by God dealing with it and providing a just foundation for the forgiveness of those who believe in him. In 1 John, in the letter of uh, 1 John chapter 4, we read, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big theological word. I doubt that probably a tenth of you hardly know what it means. But propitiation, that's an atonement that pacifies, that removes God's wrath and judgment. That's what all those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. That's why all that blood was shed as an object lesson to people for generation after generation, that sin is serious. And if we're going to be accepted with God, sin needs to be dealt with. But the death of animals can't take away our sin. But the death of the Son of God, the perfect and innocent one, who willingly suffered the wrath of God, not because he was guilty, but because we were, and he was willing to take our place, that's the basis of forgiveness. That's God's solution to our misery. So how can the love of God comfort us this morning? Not in the way that many people think. If they would uh, interpret John 3.16 in the way that people uh, tend to think, it would go something like this. God so loved the world that everybody goes to a better place when they die. God so loved the world that no one goes to hell. God so loved the world that there's not such a thing as judgment for sin. That's not what the text says, it does it. God so loved the world that he provided a way that people might escape perishing. John 3.16 makes sense to us only, number one, if we take our sin seriously, and number two, if we believe in the way God shows his love by giving his son to die in our place so that we do not perish.
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And God's love finally calls each of us to a critical decision. A critical, you know, critical, that's a matter of life and death, right? And we're talking about a matter of spiritual and eternal life or death. And we began this service by listening to the words of Jesus where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I read those verses at the beginning of every funeral because it's like with these verses, the bright light of the gospel shines upon us in the wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the Christian hope. Light that helps us to see the rich meaning of the promise of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. And this passage also helps us to see what that involves. First of all, it's life in Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Later on in this book, he'll say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's in relationship to Christ, in union with him, that there is life, true life. And that indeed involves life after death. Lazarus was dead. You can read the whole chapter and hear the story of the death of Lazarus. That was four days ago now at this point. And Mary said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And you know what Mar it's Martha? Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She was an Old Testament believer, right? I mean, she's referred to here in the New Testament. But she didn't have any more, really, hardly, than uh, many of the Old Testament saints had about the fullness of the gospel. But she believed in the resurrection of the body. That was a part of, of uh, the faith of Israel. From the very beginning, she believed in that. And that certainly is involved in what Jesus says here. When he says, he who believes in me, though he may die, Jesus acknowledges the reality of physical death. He shall live. And ultimately, that means life in a resurrection body. But then he says something else in a way that makes clear that this life also is a life that continues now despite the fact of death. And whoever lives, truly lives, and believes in me shall never die. Not really. Oh, yes, that doesn't deny the reality of the death of the body. But the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the spirit of those who die, who fall asleep in Jesus, are immediately with him. That's our great comfort, that dawn is in the presence of the Lord, even now. And ultimately, that will mean eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. But then we need to see that this eternal life is a present possession for all believers. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, has passed from death unto life already. And then you might have heard it. Jesus asked Martha a very personal question. He asked her, do you believe this? 
do you believe this? Why does dad, grandpa, why does Aaron have real comfort this morning for himself? And also as to Dawn's present condition, because she believed this simple message we've been talking about this morning. But then the question is, what about you? What about you? You know, there are only two kinds of people in the world. The Bible makes that clear. There are only two kinds of people here present this morning. Those who have eternal life and those who don't. Those who are yet perishing in their sin or those who have been rescued from that. Those who believe and those who do not believe. It's that clear. And to you who believe this morning, may this simple message strengthen your faith. May it comfort you. And may God direct you more and more into the love of God. And Christian joy in the face of suffering and of loss. And to any here who do not believe in Christ, I I really want to say who do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, because I pray that there are some here who may not yet believe in Jesus Christ, but yet will come to believe in him, maybe as a result of what you hear this morning. Let me call your attention to another word in our text. It's this, whoever. God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever, that extends to everybody. Whatever whatever our age, whatever our situation in life, whatever kind of influences we've been under that would lead us to a prejudiced opposition to the Christian message, whatever lies we have bought into that perhaps have led us to reject a message that we once heard, whether we're great sinners, maybe even criminals, or really nice people in terms of our conduct and social behavior and our relationships with others, even though we ignore God and his claim on us, whatever our situation, whoever faces the reality of their sin and need, whoever, in a sense, perks up their ears, whoever's hearts are open to the reality of this manifestation of God's love in Christ, and believes in him, he'll be given eternal life. It's like there's this this open door before you. You may be unbelieving now, but I hope that what you've heard this morning will remain in your memory, that it will remain in your conscience, that if you leave this place, if you go back to your ordinary life, and you face the reality of fear, you face the reality of guilt, you may face the reality of great depression and a sense of the meaninglessness of life, that you remember that there is an open door that has been proclaimed to you in the revelation of God's love in Christ that says at any point, at any moment, when you turn from your sin and you believe in this Savior, you receive eternal life. Maybe I'd like to draw your attention to maybe even a simpler picture that's actually found in our text in uh, in chapter... Uh, in chapter 3, in verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's an Old Testament Bible story. It helps if you know it. I'll explain it very briefly. The people of Israel had rebelled and sinned against God, and they were suffering his judgment. People were dying all around. 
And Moses cried to God for mercy. And God said, you take a serpent and make it of brass and you hold it up on a pole. And whoever looks at that serpent will be healed. And whoever believed those promises of healing through that serpent lifted up on a pole and looked at it was healed. Isn't that simple? And Jesus Christ must be lifted up. He was lifted up upon a cross. He was made a curse as an accursed thing as he suffered God's judgment. But whoever looks at him by faith, whoever looks away from themselves, whoever looks from this world and what it has to offer, whoever looks to the humanistic philosophies and looks in faith that Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen.